I still am Madeline. This is part six, um, Red Feather Bra <laughs> part two. <laughs> but here I'm going to also talk about the second round of mono um, at age 30, which, uh, which disabled me. Um, I became PWD status, person with disability status after the second round of mono and, uh, and have been uh, hardcore deteriorating ever since. But before I talk about that sad situation, as it uh, also involves me talking about my um, likely um, death in the near future, um, unnecessary death, which is what makes me so angry about it. And it's really hard not to feel resentful at, at a death that, that, you know, is entirely unnecessary and is completely avoidable. So, uh, yeah. All right. Nicer things. Nicer things. Red Feather Bras Part 2. Okay. So, that weekend, um, so that was the Halloween, like, evening I spoke of. That weekend, my friends had a big um, house party. They had this massive loft, like, huge warehouse, uh, warehouse loft. And their parties were great fun. So I, I go with my outfit. And um, you have to understand, I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly, or I wasn't at that time, a particularly large-chested person. So I never really had that situation, you know, where, like, you know, people look at your boobs and not at your face. <laughs> I sure as heck did that night. <laughs> I'd have conversations in my bra. It's sort of undulate. And, like, people just couldn't look away. And I, and I realized that I was molting it. So every time I've worn that bra since, I sort of molt feathers and have to sew more feathers onto it. Um, so uh, that was great fun. I think there are many pictures out there. <laughs> um, so I, I just never... You have to understand, I never really perceived myself as a particularly... Um, sexy person and I don't know that I never really created this outfit to be sexy it was my interpretation of the color red so, um, but people really loved it you know they got a great kick out of it and uh, and so it, you know it did morph into other Halloween costumes over the years there was um, the year I went as um, my um, superhero character uh, which I created which is um, super wench queen of the vixens and, and that involved like stripy tights and a black mesh bustier. Like it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very cute. And uh, I think like, think uh, Suicide Squad before Suicide Squad was a thing. Sort of a little, little in that land. Um, you know, what, what's her face? Um, Harley Quinn. That's what I was trying to say. Harley Quinn from Suicide Squad. <laughs> a little, uh, a little saucy, a little quirky, a little, uh, a little out there. And uh, I can't remember all of the outfits that it's been in because it's been in a lot. Um, but the next big time I remember was around about the time I actually met Liza. And I, I don't know if I've spoken about it that Liza, yes, I did speak about Liza. Liza is the one who created the uh, GoFundMe. And, um, and so I became sort of part of that, that circle of friends. And I can't remember which part of this that she was 
um, a part of because she does a lot of international travel with her business. But um, so I was living in a, a shared household and everybody was away for Thanksgiving. So I decided to have a invite my friends over and have a, like bring your favorite food, wear your favorite clothes, tell your favorite story evening. And of course, my one of my favorite pieces of clothing had become this red feather bra. And I wore it with this Hawaiian skirt. And um, uh, when I bought the skirt, I was a very different size because it was like pre-celiac disease um, uh, 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 diagnosis. And so after I was diagnosed for a little while, when we had sort of managed things, and I'll talk about that a little better, I dropped a whole bunch of water. So this thing was massive on me. I could be, literally take both my arms and stick it down into the skirt and still have room. So I was wearing suspenders to hold it up so it didn't fall off. So I, I was basically just wearing this sort of um, green and blue patterned floor length skirt with a little ruffle around like a kick slit and um and my red feather bra so I'd open the door and my friends would like peel into laughter every time they saw me because they basically just you know showed up a lot of them just showed up in like their favorite jogging pants or you know which is exactly what I wanted like wear your wear your favorite thing and so at that dinner some of my friends decided that how how could I own a red feather bra and yet not own a red feather boa so my birthday is around the holiday season. So they got me a red feather boa and I wore it for a New Year's party, like on my hat and with the red feather bra, of course. And unfortunately, um, you know, not everyone who gave it to me was there. And so they, another section of that group was having a, a games party, um, you know, a few months later. And so they decided that they would have um, a, so, they, so I have to understand, I have to back up and explain this a little bit. So their games nights, cause they have like a big, um, big house was each room was a different station. So you had the name that song, name that, name that tune station and the puzzle station. And the, and one year there was the, um, uh, uh, you know, the figure skating competition. <laughs> so, which is very, very funny because the judges, well, anyway, there's lots of lots of fun shenanigans that went on. And so uh, you'd have about 30 people broken up into five teams and they would cycle through these stations. Um, and so they decided to have like Madeline the game as one of the stations. So I wore pretty much what I'd worn on, um, well, maybe not quite, a little more outrageous um, than I wore on New Year's with like a, a um, kind of like a bowler hat with the red feather boa on it and and then sort of like cute little lacy shorts and um, I can't remember, like some sort of pattern tight. I can't remember all of it. But we took an empty frame and each team had to paint the part of the body that was in the frame on this huge piece of paper. And we gave them like finger paints and macaroni and glue and, you know, like basically kid stuff to draw. But they got so into it. And so then we put all of these pieces together up. So you created like sort of a weird Picasso version of me, which was so much fun. And they enjoyed it so much that we did it again the next year. And each team was fighting over wanting to get to paint like a section of this crazy amoeba, you know, in the ocean bra. 
<laughs> and so much merriment, much merriment was had. And it has also, I mean, I, I, uh, somebody who wasn't there for any of that, she was out of town, asked for it to be, you know, a, a ride and a different of their Halloween parties later on. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, you gotta keep in mind this bra is about 35 years old. So it's not so perky anymore. <laughs> So it doesn't really, I, I won't take a picture of it for you. It's not, I mean, it, it looks like a sort of a sad burlesque dancer at this point, you know, like past, past its prime, but, uh, but it has created much joy in my life and I think much, much merriment and, and pleasure. Um, and so it's a really fun thing to think about because that's, that's what's helped me cope all these years is those moments of lightness and pleasure and savoring your friends and savoring silliness because the rest of it has been so horrific and 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 it just becomes just when you think it can't get worse it gets worse and and of course I don't know how much worse it can get than to be facing my death um and I'm I'm grateful for made that it exists, but I'm furious about it. I had the May doctor say to me, like, you know, we're talking about where it could be administered. And they said, well, you know, it could be at a funeral home and then your friends can gather around. And sometimes that's been really beautiful. And I said, beautiful. <laughs> this isn't like some terminal cancer that you have no choice in. You know, this is an avoidable death. This is like taking insulin away from a diabetic and being all surprised when they die. You know, the lack of PWD supports, the lack of, of supports on my, on, on my disease profile. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's murder with a cheese grater. <laughs> like, I know, I think I said that already, but it's like being murdered with a cheese grater. Um, and so it's like, if they won't, the system won't allow me a, an adequate quality of life. Cause that's what I'm talking about is trying to get an adequate quality of life. Then they are not going to afford me like some sort of nice death. That's not going to happen. They're not going to pay for a funeral home, like a funeral home death. So yeah, that's not gonna, uh, and besides fact, I would be so angry. I would be so angry. Like I have this beautiful sequined um, t-shirt dress that a friend of mine bought me last Christmas. And when she bought it for me, because she knows my situation, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be alive to wear this anywhere. <laughs> like, not considering the pandemic and everything. And so I, I've let, had it hanging up thinking like, you know, maybe you will, maybe you'll make it till next Christmas. Maybe you'll get to wear it. And then my other thought is, well, I guess I could wear it, you know, when I receive medical assistance and dying I mean although that just feels it makes me it feels surreal it feels surreal that this is what's happening to me so how did I end up here so I um, came out to BC after university because it's sort of a hotbed of of um, film out here and um, I, I did a summer job and um, ended up, um, it was, a, I won't go into too much detail on it, but it was a, um, uh, uh, it was doing something that a mitochondrial 
it was really like physically intensive um, in the heat and a, a mitochondrial disorder patient should never do. And what ended up happening is I got this really bad fever, like really, really bad fever. And uh, we were off in sort of the wilds of, you know, wherever. And I ended up having to walk like what should have been a, a 30 minute walk to the hospital. It took me two and a half hours because I kept having to like, nobody would drive me. Like, I mean, there was no support where I was at all, even though I was like so sick. So I get to the hospital and they run tests and they say, your, your acne has gone systemic. Because I mean, when I say acne, I mean like acne, like people would have conversations with my acne, you know, talk about not being able to meet your eye. I mean, I got pretty good at covering it, but with an immune deficiency, acne is any infection is a, is a big bad, but I never even heard that such a thing. I asked, I asked somebody recently, is that even a thing? And they're like, well, it is a very specific. And I, oh, I think I did tell you about this. It is a very specific bacteria in acne. So yes. Although he's never heard of it before. I never heard of it before. But what they did is they put me on this, because obviously there isn't <laughs> really a treatment for acne going systemic because it's not normally a thing. So they gave me this um, antibiotic, which cost $100 for a course of it. And here I am like doing a really menial labor job. I'm not earning hardly anything. I used almost all of my money trying to buy this hundred dollar antibiotic and it's a kind that kills every single solitary bacteria in your body it was like being run over by an express express train it was awful i just fell off a cliff so um i think after so many years of antibiotics i, I had finally become chemically sensitive and, and it was, was such a big dog that of course it was probably going to precipitate that in, in somebody as vulnerable as me um, I mean, it, it did make the fever go away, but it made all of my energy vanish. So I had to leave that job and a friend of mine in the, in town here in, in Vancouver took me in and let me sort of crash on her, her sofa, but I couldn't even start looking for a job for months. I was so, you know, and I felt bad for sort of, you know, mooching off her and I just didn't know what to do. So I ended up going on just regular income assistance at the time. And then, um, then I did get a part-time job, a couple of part-time jobs and, you know, started to feel a little better, got my head shot, did a couple of community theater plays, got, uh, and won an award for one, got nominated for another one. And during the, see, during the, the first of those plays, um, I, and my scene partner, my husband in the play was supposed to kiss me on stage, but he got mono. So I said, you know, like, no, 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 we're taking the kiss out. And then he got cleared as being contagious. And so one night before we went on stage, because I, I still had the kiss taken out, and I don't think he was really thinking. I mean, I, ugh, it's one of those situations where somebody is, you know, just really such a nice person and they're just trying to be spontaneous. And it's one of those like affection moments. And he gave me like a good luck kiss before he went on stage. And as we were going on stage, I just thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. And I couldn't wipe my mouth off. I couldn't do anything because of the makeup. And, um, you know, and I know he was cleared as being infectious. So I sort of, you know, pushed it out of my mind altogether. No, it's fine. It's fine. But about uh, a week to 10 days, no, it was, yeah, I guess it was a week to 10 days later, I came down with um, like a flu. 
you know, and this, I, I, this is like later stages of rehearsal for the second play. The one I, it was a fringe festival play, you know, competition. So that's the one I won, I won best supporting actress for. And I stepped into the role like literally two weeks before they went up because they, they lost their other, um, you know, a performer for that role. And so it was, I was like, but, but then I, you know, I'm, I'm hitting stage. I'm sweating buckets. <laughs> just absolutely drenched. I have a fever. So, I mean, I was very proud of myself, but then the, the mysterious flu, it just wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. And so finally, cause I was going through various walk-in clinics cause it didn't have a GP. I hadn't been in Vancouver very long. And finally, um, I had a doctor who said it looks like mono. And so I have told you a little bit about this. Um, and I said, well, no, you, you can only get mono once. And she's like, I don't know what to tell you, but that looks like mono. So uh, sure enough, she did the blood test and it was mono. And she did the blood test every month for a year. And it came back positive for 12 months. And I had like a low grade fever for 12 months. But um, even within that, you know, I, I obviously couldn't work um, partly because I was ill and partly because I was infectious. I mean, infectious, like you really have to come in contact with the saliva. So you have to eat from something they've eaten from or kiss them. That's why it's called a kissing disease. This is not a disease that aerosolizes. Um, but, but still, you know, I, I, most of the, the jobs I was suited for were like food industry jobs. So you know, not something you should do with mono. Um, so I, I decided to take on a bit part in a community theater play. And, uh, and I really made myself sick doing that. Because again, I understand I had a mitochondrial disorder from the first round of mono. I sure as hell didn't have any comprehension of how it worked with the second. So I, I did that and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I, uh, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with English pantos. Um, so basically this was based on oh, one of the fairy tales. I can't remember which one, but the here, maybe Jack and the Giant's Beast, Jack, Jack and the beanstalk I can't remember but anyway I was like the fairy the good fairy but I went into the audition thinking like my understanding of fairies is they're mischievous so-and-sos so I went in with like big army boots and jumped on the furniture and was just like basically salty as hell and, and she never had anybody come in and read for like the the good fairy like that so she thought it was hilarious so I was basically kind of the irritated fairy godmother <laughs> like um and I remember distinctly the last night you you know with pantos you generally sort of wander off script a little bit you know you there's a lot of mischief that goes on and um there's a point in the play in which I get really frustrated um with the main character. So this night we decided I would exit the stage and the stage crew would bring me back on. But I mean, they're big guys. And so I sort of turned my hands into fists and, and stretched my arms out like, you know, rigid. And they picked me up on my fists and brought me back on stage and plopped me down. And well, nobody could talk for like five minutes because the audience was just literally rolling in the aisles. Because <laughs> uh, one, one of these guys who's not a performer at all, like all dressed in his tech gear with his little microphone he stood there and he wait went you know he, he waggled his finger at me like stay 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 <laughs> so these are the moments like in the middle of this year-long nightmare of the second round of mono 
These are, I, this is very much my personality. So if you think that I've given up, I, I tell you these stories to let you know that all along the way, up until even the latest moment, I am some crazy Pollyanna wind-up doll, <laughs> you know? But, you know, even within that, I am crushed by the weight of indifference and insane bureaucracy and absolutely mind-numbing medical abdication of care on, on just every front that you could imagine. So the second round of mono ended and there was this fed, uh, provincial program um, for artists to sort of morph that into something financially viable. Cause like often say with acting or, you know, directing or a play, you know, any of these things, there tends to be lull periods. So this was supposed to be a way to help us sort of um, innovate a way to use our talents in other ways. And I signed up for this course like three or four times. And every time I did, I came down with yet another cold or flu and I had to like cancel. And I was really frustrated by that because I wanted to sort of get rolling. I wanted to, you know, like, let's do something. Let's, let's get my career going. Let's go, let's go. Because just before I caught the second round of mono, I had an agent. I had an agent who was interested in me. She said, I just want you to take a film course because the directors, film directors get nervous about theater trained students. So let's just have one under your belt. And then I got sick for a year. And so obviously she wasn't interested in it anymore, you know, so I, I wanted something that felt more sustainable, you know, so I, I, I sign up yet again and the morning of the course, I, I start to develop like this wicked cough, but I'm determined I'm going to go. So I, I'm coughing and coughing and coughing and, and I, ah, it was so frustrating um, I did the course, the, you know, the, the leader of the course was very supportive and, but it was still really frustrating to, to feel hampered and not understand why. And so for the next three years or so, I, I kept like setting dates. I'm going to be better by this point. If I visualize I'm better, if I, if I, you know, work hard and exercise and, you know, pretty much do everything you shouldn't do as a mitochondrial disorder patient. But I didn't know that. No medical person was saying that to me. They were all encouraging me to do this. But what would happen when I get to that date I'd set that I would be better by, I would be worse. And, uh, you know, when I was diagnosed with the second round of mono, I did end up becoming on, uh, there's like tiers of PWD assistance at the time, person with disability assistance. So I was on what they called tier one, which is sort of a temporary disability. Um, and I, I was super resistant to applying for tier two, although you did get a couple hundred dollars more. I just didn't want to acknowledge I wasn't getting better. But after, you know, doing this, like, let's go Hulk smash, let's, <laughs> let's get better, you know, with this whole, you know, if you're just more positive, you'll be better. If you just do enough affirmations, if you just, it doesn't make a mitochondrial disorder not be a mitochondrial disorder any more than it would make an arm an amputated arm grow back, you know, but that is not the societal or medical understanding of these things. And of course, that is not the understanding that I had of, of how a physical obstacle works. Like I really thought that 
that was going to be a thing. And of course, that's ridiculous because it is ridiculous, but it is still a firmly held belief. And I've given this a lot of thought over the years, especially after I applied for MAID. Like, why is this accept, accept, oh, I can't speak. I'm so tired. Acceptable. And I think that we have a, a vestigial subconscious perception of persons with disabilities, of persons with health obstacles that, that goes like thousands of years back where if you were sick, you, you somehow, like bad karma, you did it to yourself or you, there was a demon or, you know, like that there was somehow this was your fault that, or if you just tried harder or if you were just a better person, I think that that's still in play because if it's not, then what the hell, what the hell is the deal with the impossible supports? I mean, um, when I first was on the first tier of disability assistance, I think it was something like $800 a month that you got. Um, no, no, that's not true. It must've been seven something. And even like 25, you know, 23, 20, I don't remember how many years ago, that many years ago, that's still not enough money to take care of yourself on. As, as a healthy person, it's not enough money. And then tier two bumped it up to like eight or $900 or something like that. Um, and over the years, it's slowly every now and then raised once in a blue moon, but really only the last year or so. Um, right now it's at like $1,358, I think. And that's a recent raise. Um, but we're still, you know, I mean, a healthy person's 40 hour a month um, minimum wage here in NBC with our cost of living is uh, over $2,400 a month. And that's without any disability expenses. So, um, and, and CERB was too, so during COVID we have something called CERB for workers who got laid off. And so that's an emergency in case of emergency break glass for a healthy person is $2,000. So how the hell anything else, but deterioration and death is going to happen on 1358 a month. I don't know that we're in the same category of coverage right now as a healthy person who's low income. That makes no sense. Um, these gaps in coverage that are happening on, I think I talked about that. I may talk more about this in episode seven when I talk about what's going on right now, but you know, there, there's a level of insanity going on with the current, um, you know, it, it's not fiscally sensible, it's not physically sensible, and it's breaking me emotional, emotionally to deal with the system. But uh, let's see. Uh, so I, I got on permanent disability, and then I started volunteering. So when I knew that I wasn't going to be able to work anymore, I started volunteering. And I've done a host of things over the years. Um from um, teaching meditation to uh, reading to the blind um, to youth projects on a bunch of different fronts. And um, I had debated about talking about this, but I think I am. Um, I do run a risk of identification, but, you know, considering the warm and fuzzy nature of this particular organization. I, I, I think, I hope, I assume, I pray that anybody from there who recognizes me um, will um, be respectful of the need for privacy to protect my life and my health. Um, but I, I've started volunteering with the Vancouver Folk Music Festival 
which uh, I really admire their accessibility um, facets. Um, they are the first um, festival in North America to have an accessibility committee. And that was some like 34, 35 years ago. Um, and so they're very forward thinking within that organization. And I learned a lot about leadership and they were very accommodating as I deteriorated, which was a, a great, great blessing. But even within that, um, and I say this because I, I want you to understand that with an organization that is incredibly progressive. And so the staff, of course, by their very nature, must be incredibly pro progressive. A conversation that I had with a staffer about 18 years ago or so um, led me to understand the, the nature of what I was up against from a societal perspective. She said to me, it must be nice to be PWD on assistance. You get, a, get to sit around and eat bonbons and watch TV. And I just thought, oh my God, oh my God, is this what you really think? So I stopped her and I said, nothing could be farther from the truth. It's like being a very large tiger trapped in a very small cage, chewing on the bars. That's what it's like. And so she stopped and you could tell she was shocked. And, and I don't think there's an understanding of the measure of the I mean when to qualify for PWD assistance you have to be in terrible shape <laughs> and there is no third tier and there should be a third tier for the measure of real housewives of post-viral syndrome like the, the when you get like you know 10 disabilities or more 10 obstacles or more they're gonna start duking it out with each other there's like mud wrestling at at Lollapalooza going on you know in the mosh pit like it is not pretty and so your expenses start to to raise dramatically and if you do not go into debt or if you do not have the money in any way shape or form then you deteriorate and that's what happened to me. I found a, a friend put me in touch with a naturopath um, who suggested that because of the liquid fire diarrhea and uh, who suggested maybe I had a wheat allergy. So he took wheat out and my symptoms halved. So the allopath said, I wonder if you have celiac disease. And so between the jigs and the reels, yep. <laughs> you know, no more gluten. And I live on the far end of the sensitivity spectrum. So many foods that are labeled gluten-free um, uh, have a measure of gluten in them because Health Canada allows for a certain measure of contamination. I cannot tolerate that contamination. So the problem with celiac disease is it can take 48 hours for a reaction to show and you don't know what got you. So I was making myself sick again and again as I tried to um, understand where I was getting um, gluten. Like where, you know, like there was a Taco Tuesdays that was like really, because I mean the cheap food has gluten in it. You know, so it's this, I'm trying to live on a budget that's impossible, like actually fully impossible and, and, and manage this autoimmune disease, which is, um, your, your risk of cancer raises dramatically on, on celiac disease, apparently, which is really scary. Um, 
And so they had, I was going to this Taco Tuesdays because it was so cheap. It was like a dollar for two tacos. So that's like great. And but then I was getting sick afterwards. And so I finally went to there. I said, could you read the the bag of the the bean mix? And sure enough, they bulked it up with wheat. And so then I started having to become obsessive and it's exhausting it's exhausting I have to label read everything it's exhausting like there's a measure of difficulty on just that one disease and I had I'd, I'd said to one of my physicians like you know I don't understand why I can't work I just keep trying and trying and she said I have been a physician for I think she'd been a physician for almost 50 years and she said I have never seen a patient with three illnesses who can work and I don't mean disabilities I mean just illnesses like not not like cancer or something like but any sort of health uh, challenge not like what I call a health obstacle um, and I went home and calculated all the health conditions that I had at that time which was about I guess maybe it was about a decade ago and I had um, 15 15 and here I thought I could work and she said, one, one health challenge, you know, it starts to become difficult Two, you might have to go to part-time, but three, that's it. And so I didn't even know that. Um, and then I had talked with another physician about, I felt so bad that I couldn't navigate the money. This was around about the time I had, um, I think I talked a little bit about that. I tried to do that self-employment program for persons with disabilities and, you know, so I could try to afford, you know, what I needed um, I, and, and she said nobody can manage on this amount of money like nobody can manage on this amount of money I don't know how you're doing what you're doing like that's a miracle but I mean to this day I feel bad like oh should I get this should I get that is this a waste of money like the debate is exhausting um, but yeah I mean that naturopath um, and I've already spoken about you know, that process of, of finding the intravenous and oral supplements that were a fraction of what I now need, but, but really scaffolded me up into, into a much more adequate quality of life. Like, I, I, I think fondly back on that. <laughs> I, and I know, I, I believe, I, I believe it is possible to at least reacquire me that level of scaffolding, but it will need everything to be covered. Everything will need to be covered um, because I don't have enough money to take care of myself. Um, and, and there's, there's now such a complexity of illness because right now I have 25 health challenges, 25, 25. And they argue with each other in some of the craziest ways. Like when the osteoarthritis in my feet stopped me from walking a few years ago and when I couldn't get the supports for the items I needed to be able to walk, um, it sent the fibro off a cliff, which sent the mitochondrial disorder off a cliff, which sent the edema off a cliff, which, I mean, and on and on and on. It was like pretty much the beginning of the end. But, you know, I mean, the the impossibility of getting what I needed without help, the, the navigating a system that the staff within the system struggle to navigate. And the support that I need, so some of the supports that I need, the system, systems processes of bureaucracy cost more than the support that I need. <laughs> like literally cost more. 
Um, and, and it doesn't make any sense. Why not have these supports as a baseline, save that bureaucratic money and give people like myself what we need? So that's just being PWD on assistance in general. Being PWD on assistance with a mitochondrial disorder, post-viral, with all of those four pillars, is its own special brand of hell. I, um, there is a, a local, I don't know how much I want to talk about it because they seem like they're going through a sea change. And so maybe things will go better, but you know, out of desperation, I asked for a referral to this local clinic that, that theoretically specializes in these kinds of, um, complex illness. And, um, it ended up being like a strictly education program for persons who have mild, moderate, uh, mostly mild ME, uh, mild fibro and mild chemical sensitivities. And I knew about 95% of what they were doing, but I was desperate. I was desperate for help. I was desperate. And as I sort of finished up their program, I, I begged everyone. I said, look, I've started the MAID process. Like... I, I don't know what to do. I know what's going to happen to me. And I just got shoulder shrugged at. I got, you know, I, I think I've, I hope, I think I've talked before about this whole, when, um, when you have such internal prejudice for doctor on doctor, like doctors who pursue this field get prejudice. Um, like that rheumatologist, I think I mentioned, who w couldn't get off the phone fast enough because he doesn't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole, even though he's self-identified as being a CFS doctor, which I think, you know, self-identifying even with that moniker sort of says everything you need to know about this is going to be a problem. But like a perfectly nice man, but he just didn't want to deal with any of that. And so the doctors who choose, who have up to this point, by and large, not everyone, um, taking it on, tend to have big hairy egos. And big hairy egos tend to want to plant a flag on the moon on, on a thing being one thing and one thing only. And so that was my experience at that time is that their lead clinician had planted his flag on the moon on it being one thing and he didn't want to hear anything else. He didn't believe it was fatal. He didn't want to, didn't believe in immune deficiencies, didn't believe, didn't want to hear any of it. And so they tossed me out on the curb like a, with a, like a bag of garbage. And I do feel traumatized by that process big time. So I, like I said, I don't want to name them or get too much in it because it sounds like they're doing a sea change. I don't know what that will mean, but I'm hopeful maybe it could mean a good thing. But the long and the short of it here in British Columbia is there is nothing for anybody with severe mitochondrial disorder, at least nothing I've come across yet. Um, and there absolutely needs to be. I hear stories about these clinics for COVID-19 long haulers, and they're just watching them deteriorate. They're just watching them fall apart. Um, you know, there are scaffolding treatments for many kinds of mitochondrial disorder. I, I am doing them myself, and we're, we're getting stuck Oh, we're stuck, stuck doing things that the naturopaths on my case don't like doing, which is having to trial and error versus just running blood work so they can look for the things that they, they are sort of had made inroads in. Uh, and I, there is some rumblings about me being triaged in a way into something that could be useful. And, but right now I'm sort of trapped in a, 
a paperwork hell with that. So I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, I've been waiting for almost two months for the paperwork to process before they can start doing blood tests. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I'm running out of money, right? You know, I've died. But they seem like great people. And, you know, so it's really hard to feel like, like a hand is coming to get me. And, and I don't know if I've expressed this already, so forgive me for repeating myself, but it feels like like I'm drowning and my head is under the water and I can see the rescuers coming, but, but they're not gonna get to me in time. That's what it feels like, you know, that, um, that, that the innovations that I have, come up with the Sherlocking the oh wow if I raise my uh, herbal antimicrobials to the roof my pain drops it was like why why is that happening but then the more I progress the, the less that's useful um, because other things are complicating matters and and uh it's so complicated and I feel like I'm running out of brain power right now so hold on I may yeah, I am 40 minutes this way I'm way over my brain power allotment so I, I hope I haven't been too brain um, foggy. I hope that made some sort of sense. And I'll have to decide. I, I guess maybe in the next episode, I'll talk about where I am right now, where I am with my health situation, what it is I'm doing right now. I was going to try to talk about the progression of things I trialed and errored, but I am not sure I have the brain power for that to remember how that whole process over the past 25 years, which is a lot. Um, so I, I think I might just jump to where I am right now in the next episode.